Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, it's not enough to just have a great idea for policy reform. You have to show that people want it. And that often means building up a coalition. How do you do that? Well, trust, consistency, persuasion, time, and maybe something else. And the people at the Georgia Center for Opportunity don't just research and write about public policy. They also spend a lot of time with community outreach organizations. They work with churches, social organizations, charities, and others, the people working to build their communities, and those working directly with the people uh, with people in need. And to talk about the work they're doing, I'm joined by their president and CEO, Randy Hicks. Randy, welcome. Uh, thanks, James. It's great to be here. I'm a big admirer of Mackinac, and so it's nice to be on this this podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, what makes the Georgia Center for Opportunity different? Well, I, I would say, like a lot of groups, we do public policy, right? We're looking at what kinds of public policies are impacting uh, people at a very personal level, what's impacting businesses, which ultimately the reason why that matters is because businesses impact people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the things that sets us apart is that we actually spend a lot of time in the community working on those who we believe could be or are most affected by pub various public policies that we're interested in. So, you know, the, the interesting thing is that there are different dynamics uh, when you're talking about working on policies at the, at the statewide legislative level and then working at the community level because the dynamics are very, very different. But we really work at both levels. So let me put it this way. At the policy level, we're looking to remove barriers that keep people from achieving a better life. That's how we would sum it up. There's a lot behind that, a lot more that can be said, but that's how I describe our policy work. At the community level, we're doing a, a very similar thing. We're helping community leaders identify barriers that exist at the community level that may be getting in the way of people achieving that better life. Now, there's, there's a great intersection of ideas and possibilities because oftentimes, there are public policies that are creating barriers at the community level. But another way I'd put it, James, and I think you'll appreciate this, you know, at the state level, we tell policymakers and citizens not to wait for the federal government to take action. Do what you can at the state level to bring about important and necessary changes. Well, we do the same thing with local leaders. We say, why sit around and wait for, your, for the state legislature to make some changes? There isn't anything necessarily that keeps you from having an impact now. And so we help coordinate efforts at the community level to address some of those issues. Uh, can you give me an example of one of those barriers that you're working to remove? Yeah, so one of the areas, areas that has been really big for us, we've spent a lot of time on, is the, the issue of prisoner reentry. Mm -hmm. So years ago, because, a little side here that's probably worth mentioning, um, 
our work revolves around something called the success sequence. So we're, another way that we're different than many of our sister organizations across the country is that we're really focused in on lower income and poor families and individuals trying to remove barriers for them. So that's a specific focus of ours. Um, and one of the things that research has demonstrated to us is that of all those adults in America who've at least graduated from high school, found steady employment, and waited till they were married to have kids, only 2% of those adults are in poverty today. So high school, steady job, wait till you're married to have kids. Of those who've gotten those three things wrong, 75% are in poverty today. That's a drastic difference. So we focus on those, <clears throat> excuse me, those three areas of, of, uh, of interest, education, employment, and family formation. On the family formation side, and this gets back to your question about an example, on the family formation side, we had gone into a community uh, at the request actually of the state to work with inner city leaders to make sure that resources were available in the community, private resources, not government ones, um, that would help uh, families become stronger, develop healthier relationships. While we were doing that, we got to know all sorts of leaders uh, in that urban environment, had a very good relationship with them, we still do. But after a year of doing that work, um, colleagues of mine here at GCO came to me and said, hey, Randy, we've got to get involved in the issue of prisoner reentry. And I looked at them like, like they were speaking a different language because it was a non sequitur to me. We were just talking about marriage and family, and now you're talking about prisoner reentry. Well, what they said was that virtually everybody in that community is impacted in some way, and therefore their households and families are, mm. by the issue of prisoner reentry. And so we jumped in on that issue at basically two levels. One was we needed to understand it at the community level before we ever made recommendations at the policy level. So our team conducted about 50 different interviews at the community level. We went into prisons. We talked to prisoners and prison wardens. We talked to the former chief justice of Georgia. We, we, we talked to high level folks, but then we talked to people running ministries that served prisoners. So the point was we wanted to be on the ground and understand what they were wrestling with. And what so were you trying that, to get? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Tell me more about what were you trying to get from those interviews? Like just to better yeah. understand the issue, like who's involved and how it's that, that's affecting right. the people directly. That's exactly right, James. Mm -hmm. Often we didn't want to assume that we knew what was needed or what the experience was on the ground. It, we can go to the state legislature and start saying, here are some changes that are needed. Or we can go into community and talk to people affected by the issue and people who are trying to walk alongside people who are affected by the issue mm -hmm. and really discover uh, what's going on at a much deeper level. So, and the other thing we can do is develop relationships that then will serve us well at the policy level. But at the start, it had nothing to do with policy. It was about us understanding the issue so that we truly could view ourselves uh, and be comfortable with calling ourselves experts on the issue. Mm -hmm. And so we went about, went about doing that. And so <clears throat> we uh, put together a working group that helped us at two levels, a working group of experts, about 10 people, 
from all across the political spectrum, by the way, that were jointly focused on changing laws that ultimately would reduce recidivism while still making and Georgia Recidivism safer. is the likelihood that a person who's released from prison uh, is charged with another crime. That's right. right. Or, charged with yeah. returns to prison. Yes. Yep. That, that's exactly right. That's what recidivism is. Um, and we had an exceptionally high rate, I think the second highest rate, recidivism rate uh, in the country. We had the second highest uh, percentage of adults mm-hmm. under state supervision in the country as well. So we had a huge problem. We were putting 16 to 18,000 people back on the street every year uh, from prison. And within three years, two thirds of those were back in prison or on their way back to prison because they had committed some sort of offense. So it was a big problem here and we just wanted to really understand it. So uh, that's an example of the kind of issue. And so it wasn't just understanding it to advocate for it at the policy level. It was understanding what was happening on the ground so that we could help people identify resources across multiple communities, solve the problem at the community level. And I, I think that's interesting because as just a fiscal policy person, I look at an issue like recidivism and I think, okay, that's bad for society. There's more crime. It's, it's expensive to, to lock people up. Yeah, if you, if you do something about this, you can really improve the state. But that's much different from the kind of things that you are dealing with uh, when you're interviewing all these people about how this issue affects them. That's right, James. I mean, think about it. Every public policy that we deal with, I don't care what it is, fiscal policy, regulatory policy of just about any kind, education policy, tech, I mean, it doesn't matter. It impacts people, right? Ultimately, the reason why all this matters is, is not just some a theoretical reason or ideological reason, ultimately, we hold to our philosophical commitments <clears throat> because we actually believe that the things that we're committed to are better for people. That's, mm-hmm. that's what this is all about. I mean, it's not just a preference, you know. Yeah. I like my coffee black, my shirt's lightly starched, and my government's smallish, um, <laughs> and my market's free-ish. You know, it's, it's about more than that. It's ultimately those free markets matter because people matter, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to stay focused on people. And that's why we wanted to understand the issue of recidivism, not just from a fiscal perspective, a government perspective, but from a human perspective, uh, because we're going to be better at what we do by knowing that. And also just because that is really what it's all about. How do you understand this issue of prison reentry better than you did when you started this process? Um, boy, um, it's, it's been a while since we jumped in on it. I, one of the biggest issues is how, how many barriers existed. Well, let me start here. Number one surprise to me at some level, it makes logical sense once you hear it, but I Mm -hmm. hadn't thought of it. Uh, A lot of the best things do. Yeah. Uh, um, Number one predictor of whether or not somebody is going to return to prison or connect in any healthy way with their family or community is whether or not they get a job. It's the number one predictor. That was something I did not know, but it made sense immediately when I heard it. Number two, um, because of that, um, we took a look at what the barriers were and we found out that we had erected all these barriers for people coming out of prison to find work, 
So we discovered that, um, and again, through personal stories, a lot of them, we found out that, you know, because they had committed a felony, they automatically uh, didn't have a, a driver's license. They didn't have access to a driver's license. That may make sense under certain circumstances, depending on a, the kind of crime that's committed. But to apply that to every person who had committed a felony means that you're letting people out of prison, telling them to find work and limiting their ability to get to work. So that was just an example of one of the barriers that stood in the way. We also found out that there were a ton of occupational licenses that former, uh, that, that returning citizens uh, could not get. They were just shut off entirely from it. Yeah, that is he, like, he, if, if, you, if you have a felon, you can't just, you do not have access to this type of employment because someone wrote into statute that felons can't get this license. That, that's exactly right. And it, it might have absolutely nothing to do or pose any threat based on the crime they had committed and the job they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was completely illogical. So those were some of the things, among many others, that had to be removed. But those were the revelations that we needed. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting, too, because all those things are um, they're policies that people engaged on that uh, that provided essentially an extra just judicial system punishment for uh, uh, upon these people in ways that, that uh, I don't know that uh, that people really intended when they set these laws into place. Yeah. Or they intended it and they just really didn't think through the implications mm. of it. And to some degree, you know, James, I can forgive that uh, excess on some lawmakers part. Uh, you know, a lot of times things are passed without some clarity around the implications and unintended consequences. The question is, when you discover those unintended consequences, are you ready to address them again? And so um, that's really what we went about, set about to do. And for your work on this issue, did Georgia lawmakers reassess those they did. rules? They did. We brought about a whole set of changes that uh, we changed many occupation occupational licensing rules. Uh, the, light, the, the driver's license uh, suspension is no longer uh, in place, except for some crimes. It's not applied to all felonies. Uh, the Government offices have banned the box. So an explanation of what that is, oftentimes on an application, one of the questions you'll be asked is, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Something along those lines. And you had to check that box. And oftentimes, businesses, as they're shifting through, just automatically throw those aside where somebody checked that box. Mm -hmm. Well, the government decided to ban that box here in Georgia at our urging. We have many businesses who voluntarily have done so, which is how we would recommend that happen at the uh, at the private level. But those are some of the changes that have, that have taken place as a result. And the recidivism rate is dropping. Is that all attributed to us and our work? I would never lay exclusive claim to it because we had lots of partners in it. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of those partnerships grew out of our our deep dive into understanding the issue at the community level. Mm-hmm. Oh, tell me about the legislative debate around those policy reforms. Like you came together with with some suggested uh, changes. There's usually some pushback. Uh, what, yeah. what were you hearing about them? Yeah, for the most part, people were receptive to it because we, first of all, we had 
there are a few things happening in our state specifically. We had a governor, Governor Deal at the time, who was very interested in criminal justice reform. So he had already started to reform, uh, to, to make front end changes, right? Sensing reforms and things like that. The back end was being left alone, which was prisoners returning to private life. And mm -hmm. so that's what we jumped in on. But because they had been addressing front end issues, uh, criminal justice issues, when we showed up, it wasn't like this was a new topic. They were accustomed to hearing about it. They just hadn't dealt with that back end, those back end issues. And so they were open to it. Some of the most of the debate went very well and was strongly in our favor because we had this diverse coalition of people uh, whom we'd gotten to know very well at the community level. James, we probably had 10 people in our working group. They met in our office once a month for a year. Mm -hmm. And I would guess of those 10 people, I don't know, we didn't ask people, but I would guess seven or eight of them probably would identify as center left. But we were all focused on similar things. Mm -hmm. So when we went to the Capitol as a conservative group with all these different partners in tow and side by side, we were in good shape to win the debate on these issues. So it went very, very well. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about some of your partners. Yeah, so we had a group called the Georgia Justice Project. Mm -hmm. The Georgia Justice Project, they're great friends. I would put them ideologically, philosophically, they're center left. But there's there are so many things we agree on. And it's interesting, again, James, when you when you start working side by side with somebody on this, you find you have more in common than mm -hmm. you than you have in terms of differences. And the, the people at Georgia Just, Justice Project are good friends because there are plenty of things we can work on together. There are times we say that's a bridge too far, but that's OK. They understand why we have those concerns. But we develop that relationship by rolling up our sleeves and working together on prisoner reentry. A prison fellowship is a Christian ministry all across the country, but also with a strong presence here in Georgia. Um, we worked with uh, transition centers. They would actually come in and pretty regularly testify on what they, they were at two outside, basically near two prison locations. So it was private ministries, nonprofits, basically near prisons to help people transition from prison life to public life or private life again, I should say. And um, because they were working with us as well. Uh, within a couple of years, they had operations out near every prison and in Georgia. So we're talking, I think it's 11 or 12 prisons in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So those, those are a few examples. Okay. Uh, I'm kind of curious. We've, we've talked a lot on the show about occupational licensing. Um, and one of the things that always comes up when we, when we, when we raise this is that the people who have who are licensed right now tend to fight against any reforms that allow more people to get licensed. Um, is that something you ran into here? Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, we, we have. And I mean, I could uh, we could go into details, but that is often what you're fighting. It's protectionism. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a, a desire to limit market entry, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. It's people who would have the ability to go in and you've, you've heard about the hair braiders, right? The African mm -hmm. hair braiders. That's a common problem. They want those people 
uh, people who are African hair braiders to go and and go through a full occupational licensing program for hair care, right? And mm. a $25,000 program when they could start working right away and they know what they're doing. Now, I just gave you an example, actually, where there shouldn't be any occupational licensing required. Somebody should just be able to, to do that. But there are all sorts of barriers, people don't, not wanting others to enter their field for, out of fear of competition. But it seems like in this case, you had a good coalition that even that when this regular barrier to occupational licensing reforms came up, it didn't stop you. Like you were still able to get what you wanted. And it sounds yeah. like the coalition's the main reason why the normal thing that usually trips up these kind of reforms didn't trip you up. But that's right. And, and I would say there's still a lot to be done on occupational licensing. The mm -hmm. best we could we could do at the time was to essentially still allow occupational licensing, licensing panels to take it into consideration, but nobody could be prohibited because of it. So they, they couldn't rule somebody out simply because they had uh, conviction on their record. There's still more to be done. It's still too restrictive, still keeping people out of certain job markets. And to be clear, those people who are kept out are usually lower income Americans. That just shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. uh, has there been a time when your partners have challenged you to uh, uh, challenged you on an issue and you went along with it? So here's what we've done, James. When we had our group together working, and, and this not just on prisoner reentry and mm -hmm, other yeah. things, there's kind of this understanding of those basic issues we agree upon. And because those are the issues we agree upon, let's stay in this space between these boundaries. Mm -hmm. Now, in the prisoner reentry working group case, we set those boundaries, we hosted the meeting, but everybody agreed on them. And there were times where Eric Cockling on my team, who actually moderated and ran that panel, would say, that's kind of outside the boundaries of what we've agreed on. So mm -hmm. let's set that aside. But he'd also be quick to say that to somebody who was probably going too far uh, in the opposite direction. Uh, so but that's essentially how we've handled that. So yeah, pe people want to bring up issues that there is an agree on, agreement mm -hmm. on, but the idea is to stay around consensus. Yeah. And we have had to tell people, no, we won't do that. Mm -hmm. Well, but there's also, I mean, I assume with what happens once you start working with these partners and you're engaging them, you're building up trust so that you can have frank discussions uh, uh, with them about other issues. Um, uh, and so in those type of uh, discussions, is there any, been a, ever been a time when like your views on an issue is, is at least help them persuade them on something else? So here's, I think this is one of the more interesting aspects of this. First of all, let's talk about politics just for a minute. Mm -hmm. Politics is about differentiation. Fundamentally, mm -hmm. politics is about differentiation. Everyone wants to differentiate themselves from their opponent. Uh, Republicans want to differentiate themselves from Democrats, Democrats from Republicans. Um, so even where there might be areas of agreement, they steer clear of them because they're constantly focused on differentiation. It's an unhealthy element of politics, quite frankly. When you go down to the community level, it's about commonalities. Now, that's not to say that at the 
at the community level, you don't find backbiting and gossip and trouble and struggle and all those kinds of things. But by and large, if you're trying to solve a problem at the community level, it's about common interests and mm -hmm. common values. And what we have found there is that among people on the left and on the right, there's so much more agreement than we realize on what matters at the community level. Most people agree that the most important thing that happens in people's lives aren't at the state level. They're at the community level. Most people agree that a job is important and that it's life-giving oftentimes, that it provides a sense of purpose and belonging, which we all need. Most people agree with that. When you get to the policy level, you start that differentiation starts occurring on, on policy and politics. Well, if you've developed those relationships at the community level and they know you and trust you, you mentioned trust, mm -hmm. they know you and trust you. When you start talking about solutions on the policy side of things, they say, I believe you. I believe you're not looking for political leverage. I believe you're actually trying to solve things because mm -hmm. you've been with me here understanding the issue and trying to solve the issue. So uh, I, I think what I have found more than anything else is that there's just agreement. Now, if I had tried some of these policy things at the, at the policy level, some of these policy changes at the legislative level, it's quite possible that we would have been rejected because the trust wasn't there. But they knew us. What are some of the other issues that you and your partners are working on? So employment, uh, you know, I just mentioned employment. We talked about prisoner reentry. Employment is a massive issue. So one of the things that we know about a job is that it's more than just a source of income. It's a source of purpose and belonging. It, it's a, it, it provides one with a sense of, of well-being that comes from enjoying the fruits of one's labor, earning success, and even just being needed, right? So at the community level, there's widespread understanding that people need jobs. And so it, we're working to organize leaders in two different communities. Our second, our, our second largest state, I mean, county, population-wise, Gwinnett County, we have a Better Work Gwinnett initiative that we coordinate. And then in Columbus, Georgia, we also we have a Better Work Columbus. And where what we do in those communities is we bring together businesses and nonprofits to help them identify the chronically un and underemployed, get them trained, and remove barriers for them to enter the workforce. So that's a coordinated effort with a very diverse coalition to help people achieve a better life. Now because we're also working on the policy level to change policies that, quite frankly, punish work. So that's where there's an intersection again. Mm -hmm. People see that there really is a benefits cliff or a welfare cliff at the community level. They want to work with us at the policy level to discuss those things that might be done there to remove that barrier to employment. Wait, sorry, what was that? The benefits well, well, cliff? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what that is? Uh, it's there are some things that if you start earning more, you're on you you lose your eligibility for the state assistance like instantly, and so like that becomes a barrier because if it's you're relying upon that benefit and you earn above that, then it's a huge disincentive to work. It's a huge yeah. effective tax. Yeah. Rate. 
that that's exactly that that's exactly right. It's like a marginal tax rate, I guess. It's it's a it's a uh, I'll give you a good example. Uh, a, a, a Georgia employer not long ago invited one of his employees into his office on a Friday afternoon. She was a single mom. Shannon gave her a promotion and a pay raise, and she left in tears, tears of joy, what it meant for her, her sense of accomplishment, what it meant for her kids. She was thrilled. That was Friday afternoon. On Monday morning, she came back in tears and turned it all down because she was going to lose thousands more in government assistance than she was going to gain in pay. So those are real things that people see at the community level. It happens to people often. We have more stories like that. And so what we're, that discussion right there opens the door to a lot of conversations at both the community level and at the policy level. Because whether you're on the left or the right, everybody, when they hear that story says, well, that's not right. That shouldn't happen to somebody. So a single mom's trying to better herself, do something good for her family. And yet we've created this weird system that ultimately punishes work. That makes no sense. How optimistic are you about your appro- uh, about how much your approach to public policy is going to change Georgia's prospects? Boy, that's a great question. And I want to answer it with a with with um, a, a real clear sense of of limitation right there are things i we can't know at this point um i am but i will say this super optimistic because i have found we have found time and again as i said previously that there's so much more agreement on a lot of these issues than we realize and if you develop the right kinds of relationships, if you develop uh, the right kind of knowledge, of, of more personal knowledge, uh, you also have those partnerships at the, to, that will serve you well in the public policy arena. And you'll also have, and use this phrase, kind of a gritty authenticity about how you even discuss these issues, because you've been there, you've talked to people, you've you, you've gotten to know people who are affected by these things. So one of the things that we have found is that people on both sides of the aisle are very receptive to, uh, to change. Still hard work, but they're more, much more receptive to change these days than they were a decade ago. Randy, good luck uh, shifting the Overton window. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.